A breakneck pace and a lack of transparency, that's what's making COVID-19 spread to hundreds of millions of people in the world's most populous nation. But how deadly will China's virus surge get? Beijing said the virus wave has already passed its peak and that the daily death rate has dropped over 70%. But a new model predicted just the opposite, and locals say caskets are selling out as losses mount in rural China. Will the country see a COVID-19 rebound? Or is the current wave already over? And what's the real situation surrounding China's outbreak? Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany today. COVID-19 has already ripped through much of China, but how big will the current virus wave get? On Wednesday, Beijing said infections have peaked and are starting to fall, reporting a daily death peak of over 4,000 on January 4th. On the other hand, a forecaster is raising its estimated number of cases and deaths for China's virus wave. UK-based health data firm Affinity added 11,000 deaths a day to its earlier estimates, meaning the new death peak will reach 36,000 on Thursday. Affinity has also changed its prediction about the extent of China's COVID-19 outbreak. It now anticipates one larger and more severe wave compared to earlier expectations of two smaller successive waves. A bigger wave will put more strain on China's healthcare system, which could lead to higher fatalities. The change comes as people across China are traveling for the Lunar New Year, spreading the virus faster in the country's vast rural areas. Authorities reported an over 70% drop in COVID-19 deaths, but new evidence suggests that China's rural regions are experiencing large death rates. According to a BBC report, caskets are selling out in the northern part of China's Shanxi province. Local producers say they haven't had time to stop production in months. Some farmers buying caskets have reported that they sometimes sell out, adding that those in the funeral business were earning a small fortune. In one village, photos have captured fresh earth mount graves along roadsides. A farmer there said COVID-19 is killing people one by one, including 40 locals who recently passed away. He added, quote, it's been nonstop over the past month. Is Beijing underreporting the full impacts of China's COVID-19 outbreak? The White House weighed in on that during a briefing on Wednesday. So China's been saying that there's 70K COVID deaths in just over a month, up from just a dozens reported earlier this month. Does the U.S. believe that new number by the Chinese government, saying that there's been 70K? The Chinese, uh, we have continued to encourage the Chinese to be cooperative with international um, uh, uh, reviews and and studies about COVID, um, and they have not been fully transparent. Um, and we cannot speak to the veracity of those numbers. We urge China to be fully transparent about what's going on. A highly anticipated COVID-19 drug from the U.S. coming away empty-handed from sales talks with virus hit China. Chinese officials say the American firm that makes it was charging too much. But is the Chinese regime really unable to afford it? An expert says the deal isn't so simple. Holiday spirits for the Lunar New Year are low this year in rural China. Why the black cloud dampening the celebrations? China's most recent COVID-19 wave is expected to accelerate by the holiday migration. 
Farmers are also struggling to obtain medication as COVID-19 drugs run out in rural areas. That's as China's health care body breaks a deal with Pfizer to buy its antiviral COVID-19 drug Paxlovid, saying it's too expensive. Starting April, the highly effective U.S. treatment won't be covered by public insurance in China. But is Pfizer asking too high a price for Paxlovid? China affairs analyst Qin Peng says it's misleading to blame the situation on Pfizer's pricing. The talks broke off not because of money, but mainly over political considerations from China. Qin says, according to an insider source, an offer to sell Paxlovid for around $100 per course was rejected by mainland China. At the same time, the U.S. purchased Paxlovid priced at around $500 per course. Taiwan and Hong Kong bought it for about $700 per course. Qin adds that the total cost to include Paxlovid on national health insurance coverage pales in front of the vast sums China has spent on trying to eliminate COVID-19. In 2021, China spent 7.5 trillion yuan on health care. In part, it was used for nucleic acid testing. So according to Su Chao Security's estimate, covering Paxlovid in big cities will cost 1.7 trillion yuan, which is actually a very small amount of money. When you calculate the financial cost, buying Paxlovid could actually save China a lot of money on medical expenses. That's as a clinical trial found 90 percent of high-risk patients treated with Paxlovid are less likely to be hospitalized. Qin says based on the 70 percent infection rate among China's 1.4 billion people, if 8 percent or 80 million infected high-risk patients got treated with Paxlovid, China's medical insurance costs could see total savings up to $240 billion. Qin says there's no explanation for not buying the drug from a financial perspective. That is, unless the Chinese regime is trying to avoid paying state pensions to these elderly high-risk citizens in the future, meaning if they were to die from the virus. Thus, this negotiation is nothing more than a political gimmick. China has no intention of achieving success in negotiations or eventually making a deal with Pfizer. It's just a show. He said the Chinese Communist Party prioritizes politics above human lives. One question the CCP has, if purchasing Paxlovid saved tens of millions of Chinese people, who would deserve the credit? During the pandemic, the CCP vigorously pushed propaganda, which claimed the U.S. failed in its fight against COVID-19. Qin says for the CCP, if a medication from the U.S., a nation Beijing deems a loser in fighting the pandemic, were to save so many Chinese lives, it would prove a major blow to the Chinese regime's reputation and would shake the foundations of its rule. China balked at buying Paxlovid after demand for the drug surged amid its domestic virus outbreak in December. Just as negotiations with Pfizer broke off, two Chinese-made medications, HIV drug Asvidine and a traditional Chinese medicine, were approved for COVID-19 insurance coverage. But both lack clinical trial data and reportedly come with certain side effects. Over in Arizona, authorities say they've seized 440 pounds of a certain precursor chemical shipped from China. The compound is often used to manufacture fentanyl, and its discovery may be a sign that producers are now manufacturing the deadly synthetic opioid on American soil. Here's the latest on the investigation. The powdered chemical was shipped from China and seized by agents Thursday morning from two locations in Tucson. According to the deputy special agent in charge for homeland security in the city, it arrived in the U.S. via a series of suspicious packages in recent months. The packages are being imported from China. Lamas said the agency launched the probe months ago. He added that it's still unclear who was involved and whether they're part of a local crime group or an international drug organization. 
If further investigation shows that the chemicals were destined for fentanyl production here in the U.S., the seizure could mark a new model for how it is manufactured, making it more readily available to consumers in the United States. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say two-thirds of the over 100,000 U.S. overdose deaths in 2021 were linked to synthetic opioids like fentanyl. I consider fentanyl to probably be the most dangerous control substance we've ever had to deal with. 50 times more potent than heroin. It was originally developed as a legal drug to treat intense pain from ailments like cancer, but even a tiny dose can be fatal. What makes it uh, so much more dangerous is because it really doesn't discriminate in terms of economics. It's available to anybody. That's because it's cheap to produce and buy. As for how it gets into the U.S., these criminal organizations know that the emphasis is at the border in terms of uh, Customs and Border Protection, you know, looking for fentanyl. So if there's a way to circumvent uh, what we're normally looking for at the border by importing it in smaller quantities and perhaps producing it in domestic in the United States. In its powder form, fentanyl is often mixed with other drugs like heroin or methamphetamine. On Friday, Beijing accused the U.S. of what it called discrediting China's anti-drug efforts. Chinese authorities also advised the U.S. to put new measures in place that's to tackle, quote, domestic consumption of the drug. Fentanyl ingredients are largely made in China and shipped to Mexican drug cartels. From there, the compounds are made into fentanyl as well as fentanyl-laced fake prescription pills. In 2018, China restricted the production of two of the most common ingredients for the drug under pressure from the Trump administration. Talks between the U.S. and China about the issue stopped after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in August. The Taliban regime in Afghanistan has arrested five men, including two Chinese nationals. The group is accused of smuggling stones containing lithium from Afghanistan to China. The two Chinese are accused of trying to sneak 1,000 tons of stones containing 30% lithium to China via Pakistan with the help of their Afghan accomplices. Local media reports lithium is the main ingredient of lithium-ion batteries, an important component of smartphones, laptops, and electric vehicles. China is one of the few countries in the region that maintains close relations with Afghanistan. Without the presence of the U.S. and its Western allies, China has the best chance of advancing its Belt and Road Infrastructure initiative there. A drowning accident in the middle reaches of the Yellow River on Sunday. A strong current washed away over a dozen people near a popular beach when water gushed into the downstream region of the Salmon Xia Dam. Videos on social media show adults and kids playing on a rocky riverbed when the upstream dam suddenly released water, trapping people in the flood. Those near the shores were pulled to safety. One of them said the water rose above six feet in six minutes. Authorities confirmed two deaths. Seven are still missing. Water management in Shanmenxia City denied releasing water from the dam, saying they only carried out a dispatch order from higher-ups. Opening dam floodgates to release excess pressure is a common practice during China's flood season. It's sometimes done without residents' knowledge. This way, authorities are exempt from compensating the residents for any damage caused. Congressman Tom Tiffany is leading an effort to build normal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. 
That means recognizing the island as a country. He just introduced a bill in Congress that would officially end the One China policy. The U.S. ended diplomatic relations with Taiwan in 1979 under the policy and switched to recognizing the communist regime in mainland China instead. Also based on the policy, China claims the democratic island as its own territory and has vowed to take it over by force if necessary. Taiwan has its own constitution and elected leaders. NTD's Capitol Report host Steve Lance sat down with Congressman Tiffany to discuss what makes the bill important. Congressman Tom Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us. Good to join you today, Steve. Congressman, you're reintroducing a bill to establish normal diplomatic relations between the United States and Taiwan. Tell us, what, what do normal diplomatic relations actually look like? Well, it should look like with um, dozens, if not hundreds, of countries around the world. Um, Taiwan has been put on the same footing since the Carter era as North Korea and other recalcitrant countries like that. Um, shouldn't they be treated? Taiwan, it's a democratic country. Since 1979, they've expanded their democracy and are truly a peace-loving, free country um, here on planet Earth, and I think they should be recognized as such. You know, it, it's fast. As somebody who's been to both countries, China and Taiwan, the differences are literally palpable. Uh, from, from the flags that they fly to the, to the type of government that they operate. So why do you think we've seen such a, a playing of, of, of words with, when it comes to uh, recognizing Taiwan? You know, I'm not sure why. Um, you're, what you said there really harks back to the trip that I made to Taiwan. And I noticed just at times the fear by some government officials towards mainland China, that really struck me. And it's informed me as we've went forward. And to me, this is why we need this bill. And it's good to see it's expanding in terms of the number of co-sponsorships. When we did it a couple years ago, it was me alone. And uh, now this year we're going to have 18 original co-sponsors. And I think it's really, uh, there's more and more people in Congress that are understanding how important Taiwan is and how important that we recognize Taiwan and that we trade with Taiwan. And do you think that uh, what, maybe one lesson that we're learning with Ukraine or an example that we're seeing with Ukraine, the importance for members of Congress and, and, and government officials, elected officials, to show their support for Taiwan so that like you said, when you went there, you don't see the, uh, the fear and trepidation from Taiwan officials over China. Support shows strength. When you look at the Ukraine, what were the two things that Vladimir put, uh, Putin took from 2021? One, America is no longer going to be energy independent under President Biden, and then the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. They saw weakness. It is really important, and that's part of the reason we're introducing this bill, is to show strength, and I think Congress has a key role to play in that. And speaking of which, uh, Speaker McCarthy announced that he will be making a trip to Taiwan in the coming weeks or months. Uh, how important do you think that will be, that trip? Uh, uh, really, really good news. You know, in spite of uh, President Biden being really hesitant on this issue, including his foreign policy team. It was good that Speaker Pelosi made the trip to Taiwan, but I'm really heartened to hear that uh, Speaker McCarthy is going to make a trip to Taiwan, and I think this benefits um, this benefits Taiwan, but it also benefits America, and it once again it shows strength. And I think Congress um, really needs to do that in part because we have this vacuum at this point on the executive in the executive branch of showing that America is a strong country, and we need to project that because sometimes that keeps the bad guys or our adversaries at bay. 
Congressman, my last question for you. In Washington, D.C., we obviously, it's the capital of of the country. Uh, we also have a lot of think tanks here, and sometimes when you talk to so-called China experts, uh, they'll, they'll lecture you as to how we should not upset the Chinese uh, government. Um, how concerning is this? Well, you, you have to know who you're talking to out here in Washington, D.C., and find out what their agenda is. And our agenda in our office, and we try to make it clear to any think tanks, any lobbyists, is that we believe the one China policy needs to end, and we believe in a free, democratically run Taiwan, and we should recognize them as such. Congressman Tom Tiffany, thank you so much. It's good to join you, Steve. Coming up, the Chinese Communist Party's influence quietly spreading through the global economy. We need to put the China issue to the forefront of the vote. We're often voting based on issues like uh, pocketbook issues, which are important. But uh, long term, all of our pocketbooks will be gone if the Chinese Communist Party uh, is allowed to continue to increase its influence and economic power in the United States. Tiffany Meyer spoke to Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, about what steps are to be taken. More on that after the break here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China In Focus. I'm Don Ma in for Tiffany. In a follow-up to our part one interview, gaming isn't the only one sector where the Chinese Communist Party is spreading its influence. Even more is happening on the economic front. Tiffany Meyer spoke to Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, about why voters should consider China's impact beyond just their own pocketbooks when headed to the polls. Actually, the best uh, the best gaming companies are um, in the United States and our allies. Uh, according to my sources, uh, the games that are coming out of China right now that are being designed in China just can't stand up to the to the U.S. and allied games. So I don't think it's going to be that difficult to um, you know switch users to uh, domestic and allied games. Um, we just do need to put those processes in place. And we can't, we can't really allow the Chinese Communist Party to come and buy our designers, who are the foundation of the excellent games that we have, uh, and use those to then create backdoors or create avenues of influence into our population, right from when they're you know, young, young people uh, that will influence them the most. And Anders, how much of this is on the economic front? Like how much money is involved or is it just the Chinese regime trying to push that influence? Well, I think there's, you know, we buy so much stuff from China. We're buying, uh, there's 650, over $650 billion a year in trade with China. Um, there's a huge uh, deficit in terms of our in, uh, trading imbalance. So they're they're selling us more stuff than we're buying. So they end up with a lot of cash, US dollars, and they need to do something with it. So they've bought US treasuries in the past. They're also buying US assets. So you know, in the past, they, they buy real estate, they buy design companies, they buy aircraft companies from the United States and, and our allies. Um, and we really need to, it needs to be a systemic change, a systemic change of decoupling, really, economic decoupling, where we stop buying 
cheap Chinese goods because it's cheap, and we start investing in our own people and and the people of our allies, and that's that's called friendshoring. We buy things from our friends, not from countries that are using it to big to build massive militaries that threaten us, like Russia and China. And on that note of, say, moving manufacturing out, for example, how would we then make sure other companies aren't going to be like, oh, here's a loophole, I'm going to go to China and get that profit then? I, I mean, loopholes are always going to be there if uh, companies <laughs> want to use them. And it's just a progressive process of uh, imposing additional bans, additional strictures, additional um, export bans, for example, as companies, uh, you know, to close all those loopholes one by one. And it, it can be a, a draining process. For example, fentanyl is a chemical product that as soon as you outlaw a particular chemical form, uh, they, re they redesign the chemistry so that um, the new fentanyl that they're, that they're uh, exporting to the United States doesn't fit that, that definition anymore and so isn't covered by the ban. So we just have to be constant. Uh, you know, the price of freedom is constant vigilance. This is, this is just what we're going to have to get used to in the future. And on that note, it seems, as you brought up earlier, Anders, how right now it seems the Biden administration is really focusing on maybe cooperating or working with China, but you're suggesting maybe more sanctions. So what would be your advice? Well, for, for example, the drug czar recently is, is you know, talking about trying to convince the, the Chinese to, again, uh, you know, cooperate in terms of law enforcement against fentanyl precursors. Um, it's just, it, it's been going on so long and so many Americans are dying uh, at this point that I think that talking is actually a sign of weakness to Beijing at this point. I think now we really need to impose uh, very, very tough and increasing uh, tariffs and sanctions. Otherwise, uh, they just think we're weak and they keep finding ways around them. It does seem like often the U.S. has very strong words, right, but then the actions aren't there to back it up. But it sounds like you're suggesting, you know, just do those strong actions and then the words will speak for themselves later. But you also mentioned how China's been buying, say, a lot of farmland or all these different things are buildings and stuff. So in all these different areas, how do we really first off see that maybe these threats are connected and then defend against it? Because right now it seems they're very fragmented and then like maybe one state will go after one thing, another, another state will be like, oh, TikTok. So how do we really deal with this? You're right. At this point, uh, Congress, even Congress, which is uh, tougher on China than the president typically. I mean, usually uh, the House is tougher than the Senate, is tougher than the, than the president. And part of that is because the big corporations in the United States have more influence the higher you get in the U.S. government hierarchy uh, because the people who've made it through all the steps of the House to the Senate to the presidency um, have done the right thing to get the big donations from billionaires that are required to get elected in this country. Um, so what you really need is, uh, you know, on farmland, for example, we need national level uh, legislation. We need the we need uh, the the Senate to step up, and the House to step up. And part of that is the American public needs to be educated, which is why Epic Times is so great, and NTD Television, and this whole suite of uh, this media uh, mini empire uh, is important. Is because 
uh, it is educating, I think, the American people about the necessities and the, the need to defend freedom and democracy here at home. And on that note, especially on how the higher you go in office, maybe the more strings you're tied to. With that, you mentioned the public being educated. So what would that be? Is it the public putting pressure on their elected officials to really see some change? Or how would we get maybe change rolling? Uh, we need to put the China issue to the forefront of the vote. We're often voting based on issues like uh, pocketbook issues, which are important. But uh, long term, all of our pocketbooks will be gone if the Chinese Communist Party uh, is allowed to continue to increase its influence and economic power in the United States. So if you really want to vote your pocketbook, uh, we need to start including China in, in most of these big decisions that we think about. And that's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Don Ma. If you have any feedback on the show or something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for watching.